They said you have to be creative. If you want to, to find out how much crime there is, you must look at a lot of different sources. Welcome to the Reimagined Justice podcast put on by the Department of Criminal Justice Studies at San Francisco State University. Throughout the history of the United States, people have sought to reimagine justice. From the early creation of due process protections against the government to contemporary efforts to reform or abolish criminal justice institutions, the concept of justice has meant different things to different people. The various meanings of justice are important to consider because a person's definition of justice almost always informs the political project they seek to achieve. In this podcast series, we bring you a look at how current and past events shape systems of so-called justice. Our shows bring attention to the ways in which the systems we have and fight over are products of long struggles over what it means to commit a crime, how society should respond to victimization, and what justice means in both theory and practice. The Reimagined Justice podcast team of hosts are proud to bring you stories about the events as well as interviews with the actors who push all of us to reimagine justice. Today, the International Crime Victim Survey will be discussed with Dr. John Von Kesteren. I'm Jim Dudley, a 30-year law enforcement professional and lecturer in criminal justice studies at San Francisco State University. I am Dr. Karina Gallo. I am an associate professor in the Department of Criminal Justice Studies at San Francisco State University. The ICVS has been carried out six times over the period of 1989 to 2010. Although national and city samples are relatively small, the ICVS is a unique survey of the experience of being victimized in that it is standard and far-reaching. It has been conducted in more than 80 countries in different regions of the world, with many countries having taken part more than once. Dr. John von Kesteren graduated in the field of methodology of social science research and statistics at Leiden University. He received his PhD in 2015 at Tilburg University. His main topic is international comparative survey research, in particular of crime victimization. He coordinated parts of the international crime surveys. He's chief analyst for the project, including the fifth survey and co-authored key findings. He also continues to work on victimization surveys and international comparisons as an independent consultant. He is currently affiliated with Tronzo as a scientific care and center of welfare of the Tilburg School of Social and Behavioral Sciences of Tilburg University. The mission of Tronzo is to build a bridge between science and practice in the area of care and welfare. So welcome, Dr. Van Kesteren. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about the International Crime Victimization, crime victimization Survey? First of all, it's a victimization survey amongst the general public. So we get data about crime and criminal justice, not from the police, not from the criminal justice system, but we interview people. Has your house been burglared? Did your car get stolen? Lists of standardized questions. That happens quite often in, in uh, many countries. The particular particularity of this international crime victim survey is that this questionnaire and the methodology is completely standardized. That means we do it in the same way in every country. 
that means that results can be compared between countries. And that is the main, the main purpose is find a way to gather data that is comparable. The criminal justice system depends on the criminal code and these are different everywhere. So it cannot be compared. Report, recording practices by the police are uh, different throughout all the countries in the world. That makes comparison different. But this is completely standardized, therefore comparable. That's what we do, it's the main purpose. And we've done that in many countries over a period of, of uh, about 15 years. To use a technical term, cross-sectional comparison between countries and longitudinal change over time. Those are the two aspects uh, that we look into. Could you mention a little bit in detail how it is carried out to get an image how it works? Well, we all know the annoying telephone calls when you are at dinner. Oh, hi, I'm from this survey company. Can I ask you something about what brand of shampoo you use? And everybody says, no, I'm not going to do this. But this is, topic is about crime. That makes it a lot more interesting. It is about international comparison. That makes it a lot more interesting. We, we really make an effort to convince people to participate. It, it is getting more difficult doing it over the phone. In most countries, it was done by telephone. We have to work around the annoyance that, that a lot of people have, even uh, me as well, who, who, who is not annoyed. But we make an effort, uh, we make appointments, we call back. And one country, there are many countries where we do it face to face. We knock on the doors and, and ask if we can interview people. And then it's a standardized set of questions. We ask about, for instance, did someone get into your house to steal something? That means we avoid a technical term like burglary because that can mean a lot of different things depending on the country you are. We ask for a period of five years. And if someone says, yes, we come back a, a little later, uh, you mentioned this. Uh, can you remember the last time it happened? And then we focus on the last year. That way we get data about uh, uh, one-year victimization rates. Because that's eventually what we're interested in. We think is the most accurate. There are a number of follow-up questions. Did you report it to the police? Uh, was any damage done? If Did you report to the police? Why did you not report? How serious was it? Depending on the crime, there are a number of follow-up questions. That's the main part of the survey. Of course, we ask for demographics, uh, age, gender, family size, a number of demographic items. And we try to get into how people feel about the police. Do you trust them? Do you think they are reliable? It's, it's a whole block of questions. It lasts on average 13 minutes over the phone, but some people are multiple victims, so it can last a bit longer. If you would summarize what the main purpose of this survey is, how would you, how would you describe that? The survey is to find out how much crime there is and do it in such a way that we can make international comparison. And we look at the, the nature of a survey is you, you cannot ask for very rare crimes like homicides. Well, every homicide is one too many, but we're talking about one to five per hundred thousand. So it's not a question you can ask. It is about what we call volume crimes, thefts, vandalism, violence. Because the rarer crimes, the, the crimes that do not happen that often, the police do have a better view on what's happening. And this is really a, a, a dark number. Most people do not report to the police. 
that means that the police will never hear about, hear about it. You mentioned an important term there, so maybe we can explain to our listener what the dark figure of crime is. Okay, yeah, the dark, the dark number. That's a term we stole from, uh, from uh, astronomers. There is uh, the official number, that's the number of crimes that end up with the police in the criminal justice system. And then there are the true number of crimes, which we don't know. And there's a gap. And that's what we call the dark number. Dark not because it's black, but because we can't see it. By taking the criminal justice system out and ask the people directly, you find out which crimes do not end up with the police. That's a, a major advantage of immunization surveys, general and, and the ICVS in, in particular. Yeah, here we call that the, um, the dark figure of crime. Yeah. And it's unreported crime, and it's a number we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And so it's, it's, um, it's tough when we try things to reduce crimes, and we, we never really know the prevention numbers, and we don't know the reduction numbers, because as you just said, uh, it's difficult to gauge the crimes that are not reported. Yeah. Would, you, would you agree that the crime victimization studies are better I would say better, not such a big dark figure of crime, but it can measure crime, true crime or real crime in a better way than reported crime. Most definitely, yes. If it comes to the uh, volume crimes, the crimes with the high numbers, the things that happen very often. When you have, when there are crimes that are very rare, like homicides, it is completely useless because that's not what a survey is. There is no instrument that fits everything. Victimization surveys are meant for volume crimes, what we call volume crimes, high numbers, where there are victims. There are also what we call victimless crimes. If there is a victimless crime, then you can't ask, have you been a victim? It's a specific scope. It looks into crimes against persons or households attempts to do a victimization surveys amongst businesses have failed. We just could not get it working because you have small businesses, big businesses, you have multinationals spread all over the world. It doesn't work. Volume crimes for persons and households, that's the scope. But there are other methods that have nothing to do with surveying. Very popular in the Netherlands is to monitor uh, drug use or drug abuse by sampling the sewer systems because the remains of drugs will end up in the sewers and you can measure how much cocaine and heroin is used in a certain city. So that's another method to measure a dark number. You're mentioning many important terms here so maybe could you give an yeah. example of a victimless crime? Uh, well, <laughs> that, that could be a philosophical thing. Uh, drugs use is a victimless crime because the people who use the drugs don't consider themselves a victim. Use of drugs is a victimless crime, in my, in my opinion. You can interview people, did you use drugs and what type of it that, that happens. But as said, the victimization survey is not very equipped for that. But as said, the sampling the wastewater from the sewer system. That's a wonderful method to find out how much drugs are being used in a certain area. The problem with reporting to the police is that it is only one method and you have to be creative in uh, what time of crime do you want to know about and what is the best method to find that out instead of relying to one institution. Because, well, when the law changes, it's no longer a crime. If the police says, well, this is not a priority, then the numbers go down. 
it is very simple to to reduce to get the numbers for a certain crime down to zero it's very easy just tell the police not to record anymore but that that's nothing to do with the real numbers of crime you have to be creative in in measuring things and the victimization survey is is one of those methods and especially because we've done it in so many so many countries that it gives a good impression on what's going on a nice anecdote with with the USA in the first survey which was done in 1989 when the results came in in our view everything is always bigger and better in the US and then the results came in and this group of crimes the crime was not at all the highest in the world no way then the political point of view was oh it cannot be right because crime is horrible we must be the worst and no you were not uh, the netherlands was for this group of crimes the the volume crimes if you want to look at other type of crimes say homicide intentional homicide uh, all over the world it's almost the same and it's much better registered that's the type of crime where you can use police data another another way of measuring violence and, and homicide is go to the emergency rooms of the hospital how many uh, people have you treated for wounds stabbing shooting or something they will not tell you who the victim was but they do have the numbers so you know how much violent crimes there are at least crimes that are so serious that you need to be treated in a hospital and those data are quite accurate as well better than the homicide data but then you have to criticize you don't know whether it was an offender or a victim so the criminal justice system say oh we don't know whether it was an offender or a victim or it was an accident was it intentional which is very important for the criminal justice system okay but you know how many people got wounded in a weekend i said you have to be creative if you want to find out how much crime there is you must look at a lot of different sources yeah, you, you mentioned three, I mean, three very important reported crime, the victimization studies and hospitalization studies in hospitals. And as you said, the victimization studies have a big advantage because they have a lower dark figure of crime. And that's why they're particularly interesting. So getting back to kind of the history of this survey, it's a privilege to be able to talk to you about this because you have, are the one that have been involved. But would you mind mentioning something about the history? Like why was this survey started and like maybe about the history of the survey? Well, it started out with the first victimization surveys which were done in the US in the 1970s. Then the methodology was brought over to England and the Netherlands, in particular Pat Mayhew and Jan van Dijk. And it was developed in the 1980s. And then uh, they were wondering, this data cannot be compared. We cannot make international comparison. And the only thing to do is to do that was to attempt to harmonize it. So look at the methodology and make guesstimates about how it can be compared, which uh, costs a lot of time and effort. I was not involved then, but I believe the people who said they tried and it didn't work. And then, as often, three people stuck their heads together. Two people I mentioned, from uh, one from the Home Office, one from the Dutch Ministry of Justice, and a law professor from Switzerland, Martin Kilias. And Martin Kilias said, have you heard of those annoying telephone calls? They were just getting into, can't we use that? So the three got together, uh, they bought a plane ticket, they met in Barcelona, I think, and they said, we are going to do it. They found uh, a sponsor, the Dutch Ministry of Justice and the Home Office paid the overhead. And then they started 
pressuring as many countries as possible to participate. So it started out with 13 countries and it was a big splash because data about crime was not international comparative. It was just not. Interpol published the data every year and everybody said, yeah, nothing. And then the big splash in 1990 was this first report. Did you saying a couple of sentences of why it wasn't comparable? The main thing was that what is a crime is defined by the criminal justice system. Each country has its own system and has its own definition for what is a crime and what is not. Some countries say, well, it's not a crime if the damage is less than 100 euro or 100 dollars. Then it's a misdemeanor or something. But in other countries, no, it, it does matter. It mainly it is the criminal justice, the, 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 the way crimes are defined is very specific for each country. Uh, compare this to the, uh, the medical system. Uh, if you've got the flu, you've got the flu. And it doesn't matter which country you are. If it is the flu from this type of strain, then that's it. That's universal all over the world. But what is a burglary? Each definition is difficult. That makes it impossible to compare. And the second is you rely on recording by the police. How does the police record these crimes? And do they want to record? A, a main problem with is, is that the police, at the end of the year, they say, oh, you only solved 10% of all the crimes. That's bad. So if the police decides, well, we are not going to record bicycle theft anymore, then the result of, uh, of, of then the percentage of crimes solved goes up to 30%. Yay, we're doing a lot better. So recording practices are very important. And how are crimes counted? Uh, for example, if two burglars get into a home where three people live, is it one crime? But there are two offenders and there are three victims. So what do you count? So these counting rules are very important as well. These are the three main things. There's no consistency about what is a crime and what is not, uh, how it is recorded, and how do you count them. And th these three make international comparison almost impossible. You also mentioned before that one of the articles that reported crime actually has more to do with confidence in the police. Rather oh, yeah. than, and you had an example from my home country, Sweden, <laughs> that you may want to mention and talk about. Yeah about violence against women. Yeah, well, this is, this is one of the topics in the survey. Uh, we ask, uh, have you been a victim? Did you report it to the police and why not? And the main reason uh, people gave for not reporting is uh, it was not serious enough. The police will not do anything about it or they cannot do anything about it. These are the three main reasons for not reporting. We earlier talked about the example of sexual crimes in Sweden. Sweden has the highest rate of sexual offenses in the world. Is that because Sweden is such a violent country? No. But women who do report to the police, they are treated very well and they get victim support by definition and they uh, always get uh, an interview with, with a lawyer who tries to find out whether there are some, what the legal options are. If, if that's your welcome, then the reporting rates go up.
compared to a country where a woman who tries to report to the police is maybe being prosecuted because she tries to make a false report. Or a woman cannot report, only men can report. And you have to have at least two men testifying that the crime has happened. Well, these two men were probably the offenders. Those countries, the reporting rates are extremely low. And, and sexual offenses are the most dramatic in that respect. We had this big debate in Sweden a few years ago where we had some cases of rapes in festivals that were highlighted by the media and all of a sudden there was a lot of reported rapes at, at festivals. Mm. So we had this debate in Sweden whether or not this was a reflection of that more people felt confidence in reporting these rapes or if it was a reflection of actually that the rates had gone up. So it, it's a very interesting point that you also makes it brings up the, the problems with using reported crime as a measure for real crime. Well, reporting crime to the police serves the criminal justice system. The criminal justice sets very high demands on, on, on evidence and, and proof. So you must be sure that it happened and the evidence must be very confident. One, one aspect about uh, uh, sexual offenses is that it is a victim-defined crime. Uh, let me explain. If, if uh, my car gets stolen, then my car is gone. That's an objective fact. Sexual offenses, lots of people have sex. It's only when the victim says, no, I don't want this. So it is the victim that defines whether it's a crime or not. And that makes it very difficult. Some people say, well, that's not objective, it's subjective, and subjective means that it's not happened. That's not what I mean, but it is a very difficult crime to, to define it and to prosecute and prove it. Compared to other violent crimes, when, when someone stabs you with a knife, there is a wound, right? Uh, and, and that's with other types of offenses, not, not uh, uh, sexual offense, that does not always happen. That makes it very difficult, but okay, it doesn't mean that we don't have to do it. We, we, we have to research it. Uh, part of the study talks about uh, repeat victimization statistics, and they're very high in some countries. Some a third of victims or more are repeat uh, victims. And I'm wondering, are there any victimization questions about victim awareness? Do, they, do you ask or follow up with situational awareness or mindfulness or monitoring of social media or apps that link to crime awareness? We, we do not. We had a series of questions. We asked the people, uh, did something, this, did this or that happen? And then he had one of the follow-up, do you consider it a crime? Uh, how serious was it? Uh, not very serious, serious, very serious on a three-point scale. That's about as far as we could get. The main purpose was is, is to get reliable data about the amount and nature of crime. And this awareness and perception and seriousness is what we try to squeeze in, but it's not the most important. If you talk about methodology, I mentioned that the survey takes 13 to 15 minutes on average, but that is about the attention span. If you continue interviewing and you make the question longer, people drop out. We know that they do because of the uh, nature, the, the, the topic is crime that keeps people focused a bit longer. 
especially uh, people that have been victimized several times, the questionnaire gets longer to 20 minutes, and then you really have to stop. We cannot, all, all the things you mentioned, we would love to put it in, but we can't. Sure. Um, so I would, I, would, I would guess then it's up to the, the country that receives your data to follow up with those kinds of things and uh, maybe educate victims. Um, well, awareness is very important, but it's not the purpose of the survey. Mm -hmm. uh, that is indeed something that uh, countries themselves have to do. Well, I don't know what, how other countries deal with it, but it is a, a very important aspect in the Netherlands. Sure. Uh, make sure to report, <laughs> make sure to uh, uh, support each other. And the victim support is one other uh, thing as well. Well, we've seen it. We've seen it in the states here. Sort of segues into a, a follow-up question about the high rates of um, re-victimization of sexual-related incidents, up to forty-five percent in some countries. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if the victims' behaviors um, were part of the study to see if if maybe their uh, activity just prior to an assault, say, was contributory to the crime. Say. In, in, in America here, we have um, victimization of uh, people that are in prostitution or drug dealing that they've been ripped off or robbed or beaten. Um, and it's directly related to the activity. Yeah, well, we, we have a few indicators. One of the background questions we ask is, uh, how often do you go out? Young people go out more often and are more often victimized. Hmm. Old ladies with a small pension are never robbed from their bed. No, it, it mm. hardly ever happens. Or violent crimes, we ask, do you know who the offender was? And if yes, who was it? 50% of all the offenders are known to the victim. And I don't know, I don't have the exact number. And quite a, a number of them was the partner or a family member. You do yep. mention an important strength of these studies now that it also challenges the media conceptions of crime, right? Because the bag snatching and things like that is something that is highlighted in the media or that, you know, elderly should be afraid of. So I think that you're pointing out another big strength of this type of way of, of measuring crime rates and who yep. goes to crime. Well, fear, fear and perception of crime is an extremely important part. And that is sometimes journalists ask me, uh, how come people are so afraid? And I said, well, because of you, because the newspapers. I mean, there is a golden rule in, in, uh, in news. Uh, ask, uh, well, Fox News is the worst example, but also the serious made media. Good news is no news. Bad news is big news. So if uh, 15 young people are stabbed and had to be treated in the hospital, that's not big news because there were young people, they were outgoing and drinking and so on. But if an old lady, uh, a bag was stolen, that's big news. Well, it's very rare. So this is one of the reasons that accurate data about the amount and nature of crime is important. How much crime is there? and the crime is really going down. If you read the newspapers, everything is horrible. Well, in fact, it's not as bad. If it comes to fear of crime, the, the right numbers are the best numbers. And, and, uh, and uh, the, the more accurate they are, the more 
confident people can be about the true risk, the true risk you run. You mentioned a few, so we talked a little bit about the strength of crime victimization studies that they are, you know, have a lower dark figure of crime, like true crime, as I said, in, in a more accurate way and also challenging media conception. What would you say are the biggest weaknesses of a crime victimization study? What is it that we can't measure? I mean, something that comes up for me, for example, are if it is that you go out, uh, call someone in their home or go to their home and interview, I'm thinking specifically about crimes that are committed in, in the home, like domestic violence. Is that something that you could talk about a little bit more, the, the weaknesses? Yeah, I, uh, uh, there are several strategies. First, we, if we are on the phone and there are some items are very personal, uh, there's always a check. Can you talk about this? Or is some, someone listening in? Uh, can we reschedule and call you back when you are on your own, for example? I have uh, uh, one brilliant anecdote was in, in an African country where it was just impossible to interview women without the head of the household being present. Then you have to play a trick. All teams of interviews, there were always teams. And then at some point, the male interviewer said, well, I want to ask you a few questions to the head of the household, but maybe it's better if your wife or daughter is not present. Okay. And then the female interviewer joined the woman and did the interview with her while in fact the male interview was just distracting the men so you have to play a lot of tricks to to get it done there are many of that type of anecdotes where 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 people who do not feel free to talk and we try to convince them and we find a way to interview these but it's quite rare in, in the beginning of the survey, uh, asking about sexual offenses was only asked to women. And then, ooh, shall we ask it to men as well? Ah, scary, scary. Now, well, let's try it in Norway. Oh, that went okay. No silly reactions. And uh, in the last survey, 2010 and 2015, we asked to everyone. No problem whatsoever. So things change, uh, but it's basically, uh, uh, there are another anecdote, a country uh, that was Kazakhstan, where interviews, the respondents called the police and the interviewers were arrested because, oh, what, you can't do that. Yeah, it's a post-Soviet state, right? So uh, perhaps these were criminals trying to find out scouting households, whether it's worth to burglar the house or something. That kind of things are not really heard of in America or in Europe, but oh, the, the world is a lot bigger and these things can happen. Oh, there is a, uh, I can fill two days with anecdotes in this respect, uh, but we make an effort and we uh, try to find a solution. Uh, if, if I coordinate this and I'm communicating with research in, in all countries, I say, well, keep me posted what's going on and let me know if something goes wrong. And if they say, oh, no, no, everything is going fine, no problems whatsoever, then I know there's something wrong. Because in a survey like this, if you do it in so many countries, each country, something goes wrong. And then you have to fix it somehow. 
the Kazakhstan thing where interviewers were, were arrested, well, we got them out eventually, but about confidence in the police, confidence in the interviewers. We guarantee anonymity, but do people believe that? Well, most people do, but some don't. Could you talk a little bit about also, so we, we talked about the, the importance of victimization studies. We talked about the aim and the history. Could you talk a little bit about the main results of the studies? So you conducted these over a set uh, number of years. Like what, what does the victimization studies show, both in a comparative perspective, but also maybe in a historical perspective of development of crime? Well, the uh, ICVS started 1990-1989, which was the top, uh, where in the USA it was at its maximum. Since then, it was going down, and our numbers show confirmed that. In Europe, the maximum amount of crime was halfway the 90s. Well, crime is a very political sensitive issue, because if crime goes up, it's, of course, the previous government to blame. And if crime is go down, you see there, we are only in office since one month, and crime is already going down. Uh, what, what we... Uh, noticed that uh, crime was going down in the US everywhere. The, the top was in Europe halfway, but it was everywhere the same. It doesn't matter whether you had a left-wing government or a right-wing government, if you're tough on crime or not. Crime was going down after 1995, and it's still going down. So that's one of the things we've proven, that politics does not have that much to do with it. How can you explain it? What would be your theory? Well, that's what I'm working towards. Second thing we found out was that uh, a lot of crime is um, opportunistic. It means that offenders, they are not full-time criminals doing nothing else but committing crimes, but a lot of crimes are just happened by someone who sees an opportunity and takes it. If you take away the opportunity, the crime goes down. That uh, was the main argument. Quite a trivial crime is bicycle theft. And that's, every Dutchman will talk about bicycle theft because we are bicycle country. Therefore, the Netherlands and Denmark were the highest if it comes to bicycle theft. And that's weird. If everybody has a bicycle, why is there a need to steal them then? That's <laughs> one thing, right? Um, or if there are a fixed amount of bad people who steal bicycles, then if there are more bicycles in a country, the, the risk if you as an owner are victimized gets smaller and smaller because the risk is spread over more people. And it turned out not to be. The more bicycles there are, the more and more thefts there are. It's not even linear. Twice as many bicycles, more than twice as many thefts. That's what the International Crime Victim Survey showed, but till within all the Western countries. So we were very excited that we could do a survey in Beijing, China, bicycle country. And it turns out bicycle theft in China was as high as in the Netherlands because the bicycle ownership was as high as in the Netherlands. That was proof. Although maybe not the most important crime, it is the most opportunistic crime that proves crimes are in a big part a matter of opportunity. That is proven. There are crimes where it only plays 50% or 30%, but it's, uh, it contradicts the opinion that crimes are committed by bad people. Mm. No, no, I've stolen a bicycle, sorry. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a criminal, uh, not, not recently, but as a student, and I don't consider myself very bad. So that's one thing that the, the, the project has shown is by uh, cross-cultural studies. We've proven that opportunity is an important part, and by reducing the opportunity, the crime will go down. And that is the only consistent factor that explains the drop in crime in the uh, industrialized countries. That's a, that's a great point that you make, doctor. And I read that early on about bicycle ownership and vehicle ownership. And it seems obvious when you think about it that the more there are, the more there's opportunity to be stolen. And you yeah. also mentioned the relationship of burglary and fear and alarms, that yeah. certainly fear enters into the reporting. And it used to be that alarms were only for the affluent, the people who could afford alarm systems had them. And so perhaps burglaries were less likely where there were alarm systems. But now uh, alarm systems are cheap and they're ubiquitous. And we have things like the ring. I have one on my front door. And so if you were to update a study or do another study, are new surveys showing a drop in burglaries due to inexpensive security alarms? And can you can you see a disparity in the economic status of the victim? And you well, say in the report that large detached homes are more likely to be burglarized, but now they're more likely to have a security system. And as you just said, burglars, like all theft, are opportunists. Yeah. Um, well, you, you mentioned correctly, uh, in the early days, early 90s, um, if you looked at one of the background questions, do you have a burglar alarm? You see that the people who have a burglar alarm are more often burglars. And, but we don't know whether that household would have been burglared if they would not have had. Uh, probably people think the chance of me getting victimized is high, so I take a burglar alarm. So a, a preventive measure like burglar alarms, uh, you cannot prove that it has worked or people who got uh, uh, victimized and then took a burglar arm afterwards. So that explains the correlation, the counterintuitive uh, correlation that people with a burglar arm have higher victimization rates. Yeah, victimization, the, the burglar arms are more common, but to be honest, uh, you have to be at home. If, if, you, if you're not at home, there's a burglar arm, who cares? A smart burglar knows. If you ask me, far more effective is good solid locks on your doors and windows. Uh, Dutch law changed in 1999. It said any new house must have uh, locks uh, and, and uh, uh, windows. They have to be so strong that it will take three minutes to get in. Three minutes is a lifetime for a burglar. Then there are certain areas where a project where, where the one half of the street was uh, finished uh, in December 98 under the old law. Then the other half of the street was finished in January where they had to be to comply with the law. And then you see a difference between the same houses in the same area that were before the change of law and after. And that proved that it works. So I believe strong solid locks work better than, than electronic alarms. Although it sounds fashionable, right? Oh, I've got the most expensive alarm. Another aspect, which is not from the survey, but from my big brother, 
I'm in volume crimes, the, the, the often committed crimes, and he is in high profile security. That means the rich and famous, including the royal family. Uh, and and Heineken, the, the boss of the big Heineken brewery. That's that's the security things he does, and it's a, that's a completely different ballgame. Uh, normal burglaries are very opportunistic, and if there is no window open or the door is too strong, forget it. I go to the next house. But these high-profile crimes, that's where criminals take the time. They study when are they at home, when do they leave, what kind of security. Yeah, they prepare for weeks because there is a lot to get. So that's a different type of crime. So I contradict myself now. First, I said lots of crimes is opportunistic. I did not say all crimes were. Many crimes are, but the very serious crimes are, are professionals, but that's a minority. Another example in the European Union, also 1999, by law, each car had to have a electronic uh, lock. So if I look at the old American cop shows where a criminal gets into the car and under the wiggles with the two, boom, boom, drive off. That doesn't work anymore. But of course, as from 1999, but still cars that were one year old could be stolen that way. But now it's 2020. So the cars that can be stolen in the old fashioned hot wiring is called, I think, are 21 years old. There are not so many cars. Car theft plummeted. It's you saw the percentage of car thefts go down dramatically by taking away the opportunity. Yeah, you you bring up a great you bring up a great point, and that is you know one of one of the things that you um, measured was police response satisfaction, and yeah. and you mentioned some countries have lower satisfaction than previous years, and maybe it's because you just started asking the question or that the police asked, um, you know, do you want updates on your crime? Yeah. And um, it seemed that uh, some were disappointed when they didn't receive updates of their case. Uh, often the rated resp responses low chose your category of police did not do enough. And I'm wondering, you just said it, you know, people, people are watching crime shows on TV, they're seeing movies, and there's this expectation that maybe because of urban legend, the police should go pick up DNA and fiber and hair and fingerprints. And every crime scene is a major homicide, mass murder crime scene, <laughs> yeah. right? That's, that's a, an expectation I think some victims have. Yeah, cop shows. Uh, have you got any idea how many burglaries are solved by fingerprinting? Very few. I know that very few. I know that from experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, precisely. But the cop shows, well, you must do something exciting. Uh, as I said, it is uh, make sure that the burglar doesn't get into your house. It's much more effective because that's what you do up front. And the police, by definition, is reactive. Sure. Uh, so that's by definition. So crime prevention is, is, in my point of view, much more important. I mean, of course, you have to catch the criminal and you have to throw them in jail or, or something. But to get crime down, crime prevention is much more important because of the that most crimes are opportunistic. Take the opportunity away and it goes down dramatically. So that's why I wrote an exciting article about gun ownership. Take them away. Right. <laughs> 
more likely to be stolen, more likely to be used against you, bad things. Yeah, but <laughs> let's not go there. Yeah, that's uh, another podcast. <laughs> so, John, we're getting to the end of our session here. I have two last questions here that maybe we can end with. My first question is, if you would do it again now, is there anything that you would change for the next survey? And the second question is, what do you predict about the future, about crime rates? How do you think um, crime trends are going to look like? What would these surveys show if we were to do them again in the next three decades or so? Well, the first question is, what would I have done different? I was not at a complete start. I, I started uh, on the project just after the first wave of surveys. I think we did pretty well. I can fantasize about a perfect world where we have 10 times more money than we had, but let's be realistic. We, we did whatever we could, given, given the circumstances, the resources. Uh, there are a few things that were more organizational. Wherever you work, there is office politics, and within a project like this, with so many countries involved, there is politics and people with certain interests uh, who are pushing their agenda, but that's part of the deal. And you can't change that. Uh, you can only dream that that never happens, but it always happens. What do I see in the future? For this particular international survey, we've worked very hard to get a, a to institutionalize it, because it was now the effort of a few individuals who pulled all their resources. Uh, we have tried to get the UN involved, but the UN doesn't do anything unless you bring a lot of money with you. We've tried to get the European Union involved to let them adopt it. That didn't work. What do I think of the future with crime? Uh, crime changes. There is uh, 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 now a thing called internet that didn't exist 30 years ago. And there are a lot of internet-related crimes that do not, did not exist then and new crimes coming up. Um, for example, theft of cell phones. When cell phones did not exist, there was zero. Then they came, they became a very uh, popular thing to steal. And nowadays, why steal a, a cell phone? I mean, you can't sell them. Nobody is interested in a half a year old cell phone. It has to be the newest version, right? So. It doesn't happen anymore. So crimes come, crimes go. I think the crime that we research are going down and keep on going down. We'll find a way. First, a crime comes up and then you have to find a way to deal with it and decriminalize a few things like use of drugs. Come on, why do that? Why, why is it a crime? We, we hardly have any drug addicts left in the Netherlands. Because those who are uh, uh, addicted to heroin are now treated as if they are patients and they get the heroin as medication. That means they don't have to go out and steal. That means that they can't hold a job, but still the welfare they get enables them to live somewhere. So all the drugs related crimes go down. Be practical. And I think, I hope the US is doing things with legalizing uh, cannabis. Yay, finalmente. Focus on crime prevention, that will work. And I remember one of the first meetings in the early days with the uh, British researcher, Pat Mayhew, when we had a little party dinner because the project was developed and she raised her glass and said, to many, many victims. And uh, because, uh, well, we're, we're unemployed now. <laughs> because 
the international victim survey is not dead, but uh, the crime has gone down so much that there is less interest in this type of crime survey. That's quite a contrast to what you would see in in the media now. <laughs> that you what you say. Yeah, well, that's 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 one thing you have to punish the media. Good news is no news. Bad news is big news. I mean, uh, look at the numbers, not at the headlines, please. Especially if it comes to crime. Thank you so much, John, for this interview. This was uh, such a pleasure speaking to you and learning about victimization studies and also the history of them. So important. Thank you. You've been listening to Jim Dudley and Karina Gallo from San Francisco State talking with noted researcher and expert on the International Crime Victims Survey, Dr. John Von Kesteren. Thank you so much for your time and your contributions. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. We look forward to connecting with you next time. To find out more about the Reimagine Justice podcast, visit our website at reimaginejustice.com. That's reimagine-justice.com. To find out more about the Department of Criminal Justice Studies at San Francisco State, visit our website at cj.sfsu.edu. Special thanks to all who helped make this podcast possible. The Criminal Justice Studies faculty, Gina James, Kai Quach, and especially Dr. Karina Gayo, whose ideas inspired this series and podcast. Thank you.